So there's this uh, senior fellow on an airplane, uh, and he's trying to get some rest. And this uh, his seatmate, guy sitting next to him, this young fellow, says to him, "Hey, I got a game we can play." The older guy's really not in the mood for this at all. He wants to get some rest. But the younger guy says, "It's a good game. You can make some money." He says, "We're going to ask each other questions." And if I ask you a question you don't know, you have to give me $5. But if I ask you a question that you don't know, I have to give you 50 So it's much better odds for you. So would you like to play? So the, uh, the old guy's like, no, not really. He's like, come on, come on, just, just, just try. He says, fine, 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 go ahead. So the young guy says, all right. What's the, diff, the distance from the earth to the moon? So the old guy, without saying a word, reaches into his wallet, pulls out a $5 bill, gives it to the young guy, and goes back to sleep. The young guy says, hold on, hold on a second. Now you have to ask me a question. Fine, okay, I'll ask you a question. Uh, what goes up the hill with three legs and goes down the hill with two legs? The young guy says, okay, just hold on a second, get back to you. Starts Googling, doesn't find anything. Starts texting his friends, people who are smart, people who know things, nobody knows anything. An hour goes by, the old guy's sleeping, an hour goes by, he can't find the answer. So finally, he says to the old guy, okay, fine, I don't know, what goes up the hill with three legs and comes down the hill with two legs? The old guy takes out a $5 bill, gives it to the guy, goes back to sleep. Today's topic is about questions that keep us up at night. Judaism has a tradition of questioning and really, really getting deep into our questions. And in fact, sometimes it looks like we're arguing or that we're angry about things, but really we're just very inquisitive. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the Jewish inquisitive tradition and where that comes from. So we're going to Start with a story, an episode from this week's Parsha. To set the scene, we are talking about the last days of Yankov Avinu, our forefather Jacob. He is on his deathbed, and he calls his son Yosef Hatzadik, Joseph, who had risen to prominence and become the second in command of the world superpower, uh, along with the Eneklach, his two grandchildren, Ephraim and Menashe, and uh, Joseph is there to get blessings for the two grandchildren from, from his father, from Jacob. And at that moment, Jacob gives Joseph his last will and testament. He has but one request. What is his one request? Do not leave my body here in Egypt. You must bring me immediately for burial in the Holy Land. And not only in the Holy Land, but specifically in the Holy City of Hebron, and even more specifically in the Holy Site of Maras HaMachpelah, the, the cave of, of, of Machpelah, the, the double cave, which is the burial site of Odom and Chave, and of Avram and Sarah. We know that Avram bought that land. We read about it in Parshas Chayi Sarah. And of Yitzchak and Rivka. And Leah 
has uh, been buried there, and now Yankiv wants to join her there. Okay. The elephant in the room. You know, I bought my friend a birthday present. I bought him an elephant. He said, thank you. I said, don't mention it. Get it? Don't mention it. That was a hilarious joke. I didn't even get a response. Okay. At any rate, what's... Don't mention it. You're not supposed to mention the elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room? Okay, y Yankiv Avino is telling Yasef, whatever you do, please, please do not leave me here. You must make sure to bury me in Hevrain, in the Maras Machpelah. That's the only place where you can bury me. What's the elephant in the room? Rachel. Not that he should be buried with her, but she should have been buried with him, right? Yeah. So, and, and who is Rachel? I mean, in relation to Yosef? That's his mother! So he's telling his son, who's this powerful man, he's really, in, in, in title, he's second in command, but really he's the most powerful man in, in, in the world. And he's saying to his son, listen, I want you to use all of your uh, connections and your power to make sure that I'm buried in this special spot. I don't want to be buried anywhere else. Oh yeah, your mother was buried at the side of the road. We buried her right where she passed away on the side of the road. We didn't give her that benefit. So in other words, until that moment, Yasef could have thought to himself, okay, so my mother wasn't buried in that place, but maybe it's not such a big deal to be buried in that place. But now that Yankiv is saying, this is my last request and my only request, it's pretty clear that it is important to be buried there. So that's the elephant in the room. And, and Yankiv mentions the elephant in the room. And, and let's just look. Perig Memches, chapter 48, Pasuk Zion, verse 7. And as for me, when I came from Padon, Mesa Olai Rachel, Rachel passed away. Be'eretz Kenan, in the land of Kenan, Baderech, on the way, on the road. Be'eid Kivras Eretz, Lavoi Efrosa, when there was still some way to go until Efrat. Ve'ekbereho Shom, and I buried her there. Why is Yankiv relating this narrative? Because this, like I said, is the elephant in the room. This is what needs to be addressed. And Rashi tells us, Rashi says, When I was coming from Padon, and Rashi says, Although I am burdening you, or I'm troubling you, to bury me in that place in Eretz Kanan, and I didn't do that for your mother, she died near Beis Lechem, and then he explains why was that a little bit further in the Rashi. He says, and I know. Yankiv says to Yosef, and I know. It's hard to translate. Literally, it means you have something in your heart toward me. But it means you're troubled. You have something in your heart. You're, you're, you're disturbed. I know you're disturbed about this. So then he tells him this story. But here's what you ought to know. According to divine command, I buried her there. She will be an assistant, a help to her children. When the 
general of the Babylonians will exile the Jewish people. And he tells the whole beautiful story of what will happen when the Jewish people are exiled, that Mama Rachel will come out and cry for them. Rachel mevak al baneho, Rachel will cry for her children, and in the merit of the archetypical Jewish mother, Mama Rachel, crying for the Jewish people, as they're brought out into Gullus, they will be brought back. So that's the explanation. That's the beautiful story, yeah? Did Yosef himself go to his mother on the way from... It, it, with the he also passed by, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the point is, Yankov is giving an explanation now for why it was important that this be done. And uh, seemingly doing it so that Yosef shouldn't have, like we say, he shouldn't be troubled. His heart shouldn't be troubled. So we have a question about this. We have a very specific question about this. Not why was Rachel buried where she was. We know why she was buried where she was. We have a different question. Yeah. Our question is why Yankiv felt that he needed to excuse himself or he needed to, what we say in Yiddish, he needed to give an excuse Otherwise, Yosef would be disturbed, he'd be troubled, he'd be upset. It's not, it, it, you know, you're saying, well, why not? Why not? Because th this is not a soap opera. Because this is, not, this is not a TV show. These are not petty people. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the, the Ovis. Think about, first of all, the relationship between Yankov and Yosef. It says that Yosef was ben Zekunim. Which the one meaning is that he was the, the child of the old age of, of, of Yankiv. But Ben Zekunim, according to Unculus, means Bar Hakim, the wise son. Which means that he was the protege, he was the star pupil of his father. That everything that Yankiv knew, all of his Torah knowledge, he passed on to Yosef. That was his, that was his disciple. That was his disciple. What's a disciple? A disciple isn't just somebody who, you know, uh, can quote you. Disciple is a, is, is, is a certain level of, of subservience, of surrender. Chazal tell us, anyone who second-guesses his teacher is like he's second-guessing the Holy Divine Presence itself. So, Yezav Atzadik, who's the true disciple of his father, isn't second-guessing, doesn't make sense, that he's thinking to himself, you know, Father, kind of bothers me that you don't really have a good reason to justify what you did. That wouldn't even cross through his mind. Second of all, second of all, think of the setting here, even just on an emotional level. This is, a, he's on his deathbed. And Yasef uh, brought the Eneklach, the, 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 the grandchildren, and Menashe, to be benched by the Zayde before he passes away. At this, this poignant moment, I mean, maybe later, maybe after, but at this poignant moment, Yasef is, 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 is questioning the motives of his father. So it doesn't make sense on a couple of levels. On a couple of levels, it doesn't make sense that Yank Vivinu has to sort of excuse himself and, and give this explanation. So, I want to tell you a story that might help us to uh, shed some light. The story was actually it was told by the Rebbe 
uh, in a short version, and there's a longer version that was told by the Friedrich Rebbe, which is recorded in Likutei Diburim, which is, uh, which is a sefer of the Sichas of the Friedrich Rebbe. Um, it's a, it's a well-known Hasidic story, and there are different versions of it, but I'm going to tell you the version as it was told by the Friedrich Rebbe and, and, and published in Likutei Diburim, as mentioned. And it has to do with the Talmidei Amagid, the disciples of the Mizritch Amagid. As we know, the Baal Shem Tev had 60 disciples. He influenced many, many people, but 60 proper disciples. And the Magid had Pishnaim, had double that number. He had 120 disciples. And of the 120 disciples, these were the all-stars of the Hasidic world. They all became fathers of different Hasidic dynasties. Great, great tzaddikim, including the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. Um, this particular story takes place where a group of the students, specifically the Balaflo and his brother Reb Shmelke. So Balaflo was Reb Pinchas, who later became the Rav of Frankfurt, Germany. He was a Rav, a great Paisek, a great halachic mind. His brother Reb Shmuel Shmelke of Nicholsburg, who was also a great Rav, a great halachic mind. Also the Tildis Yankiv Yesef, Reb Yankiv Yesef of, of Polnoy, who was originally a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tev, also a great Rav and halachic mind. And they were once studying a passage of, of Gemara from the Talmudic tractate Erchin, and they were having a discussion about a particular uh, passage, what it meant. And uh, they were involved in this hair-splitting analysis, and they were arguing back and forth, trying to figure out what it meant. And another one of the Talmidim, Reb Zusha, overheard. Now, Reb Zusha, I want to explain something. People tell stories about Reb Zusha as if he was a simple person. He wasn't a simple person. He was a Talmud Chacham. He was a scholar in his own right. However, relative to some of the other Talmidim, especially the ones we just mentioned, he was not into that kind of depth of, of analysis in the same way. It was obviously, he was, he, 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 he was a scholar, and he was well-versed in, in the entire Torah, but that depth, or that type of hair-splitting analysis, that wasn't, his, that wasn't his forte. He was more known for his piety, and for his, his righteousness, his avayda, his service of Hashem. So Reb Zushia is overhearing the conversation, and he comes over and says, what, what are we talking about? And they tell him what they're talking about, and he can't really follow the discussion. It's very, very deep. So, he took a Gemara, the Gemara that they were discussing, and he went to his room, privately, and he started crying. And he said, Rabbeinu Shalaylam, master of the world, Zushia has a neshama, and he wants to taste the sweetness of your Torah. And he fasted for three days, until some clarity on this particular passage came to him. Afterward, the Talmidim were in the room of the Magid, their Rebbe, the Mezritsha Magid, and they had an opportunity to pose this question or to relay this whole discussion to their Rebbe, to the Magid. And um, so again, these parties who were involved, the Balaflor, Reb, Reb Shmelke, Reb uh, Yankiv Yesef, they, they were explaining to the, to the Magid this whole discussion they were having, and each one offered his explanation. 
And then seemingly out of nowhere, they didn't know, they didn't know what Reb Zusha did. They didn't know he went to his room, that he had cried. The Magid turns to Reb Zusha, he zeroes in on him, and he says, and what do you say? And what do you say? Uh, which nobody expected that he would, they didn't know Zusha was even part of this whole discussion. He wasn't part of the discussion. Reb Zusha said, you know, here's my humble interpretation, and he gave an answer, and the Magid says, and this is correct. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, I know that we have a question on the back burner, and that I told you the story in order to answer the question. Remember our question is the appropriateness or the likelihood that Yosef is really troubled by his father and, and is demanding an explanation, right? That was our original question. And I said, I'm going to tell the story in order to answer that question. But before we, do, before we answer that question, I want to ask a question about this story. And I'm going to ask the question about this story with another story. We have a lot of browser file to tabs open right now, okay? So, but you can do it? Okay, fine. We're going to open up another tab here. Um, one of the, what's the most famous Reb Zusha story? You know the most famous Reb Zusha story? I think. I didn't do a poll. I don't know scientifically. But I think the most famous Reb Zusha story is Reb Zusha was on his deathbed. Ah. And he was crying. And the Talmudim said, Rebbe, why are you crying? He says, I fear judgment. Rebbe, why do you fear judgment? You lived a life of perfect purity and piety. If you fear judgment, it doesn't bode very well for the rest of us. We don't hold a candle to you. He says, my children, don't think that I'm afraid that I'm going to pass from this world and I'm going to come to the heavenly tribunal and they're going to review my life and they're going to look at me and going to demand from me, Zusha, why weren't you like Avramavino? Don't think that I'm afraid they're going to look at my life and they're going to look at me and they're going to say, Zusha, why weren't you like Meshe what I'm afraid of is they're going to look at my life, or they're going to look at me, and they're going to say, Zusha, why weren't you like Zusha? Okay, famous story. So here's my question. If everyone just has to be the best them that they can be, so who says you have to be a scholar? So these other students, they were the scholars. So that's, that was their thing. Why does it have to be his thing? Why does he have to go to his room and weep and cry that he's not able to participate in the scholarly discussion. Everyone should just be good at what they're, what they're good at. <laughs> but the, the, the answer to the, to the question is in the story. He said, Zusha has a neshama and he wants to taste the sweetness of your Torah. It's not a question about keeping up with others or comparing yourself to others. Mm -hmm. It's a question of the fact that a neshama, a neshama needs that connection. And tasting the sweetness. What does it mean to taste the, the, the sweetness of the Torah? Tasting, the word for taste is tam, which is also the word for reason. Tas ayin mem. When you know the reason, that's the taste, that's the gishmak of Torah. And every yid with a neshama, which means every yid, needs to be able to taste that sweetness. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I want to be smart or I want to compete with the scholars or I want to be known as a scholar, it has nothing to do with it. I need that connection, and I don't want to be deprived of that connection. And therefore, if there's some aspect of Torah knowledge that is being withheld from me, that should disturb me, that should upset me, until I weep, like Zusha. Now, I don't know if all of us are on the level that if we weep about it, it'll be, the answer will be revealed to us. But definitely the weeping is something to emulate. The idea that there's something in Torah that I don't understand, and that itself is disturbing to me. Because I want that connection. When the Jewish people promised Hashem before we received the Torah, Nasa Vinishma, what does that mean? 
The Gemara says we were given two crowns, one for Nasa, one, one for Nishma. If the whole point was, was obedience, that we put Nasa before Nishma, we will do before we will listen, then we should have been given one crown, a crown for obedience. Why were we given two crowns? Why was Nishma, we will listen, we will later find out the reason, also worthy of a crown? And it's very simple. Because it's not just, we will do before we understand. Because if that's all it were, then just do and never understand. It's we will do, and even after we're doing, we'll be interested enough to say, Hashem, please, you don't need to convince us to do it, we're already doing it, but we want to get to know you better. Mm -hmm. And if we can have insight into your mitzvahs, this will make us closer. So, Nasa is, I'll do it, and I don't need to be convinced because Hashem asked me to do it, that's enough of a reason. Nishma is, and now I'm so fascinated, and I'm so interested, and I so much crave closeness with Hashem, that if I have a way of getting close by knowing some of the reasons of his mitzvahs, then, then I, I, I desire that connection. I, I, I yearn for that connection. That's the Jewish inquisitive tradition. I'll tell you one more story. There was once a wealthy man who was somewhat of a scholar, and he wanted a son-in-law who was a scholar. So he went around to the different yeshivas, and he would faher, he would uh, give tests to the bachram, whoever the eligible bachram were, who were ready to get married. And he'd go from town to town, he had a certain problem, Talmudic problem that he would pose to all the bachram, and nobody could answer it. So he comes to one town, he does his, his, his usual thing, he asks the Rosh Hashiva, who are your top Bahram, and he has one-on-one -on -one meetings with them, and each one he poses the same question, and they, they offer different answers, and nobody can answer it. So he, he does this in one particular town, and none of the Bahram could answer it, and then he, he tells his wagon driver, tomorrow morning, uh, early in the morning, right after davening, we're leaving town. So the next morning, gets up at dawn, he davens, and then he gets in his carriage, and he's leaving town. As he's leaving town, he hears pounding feet behind him. And as the, the pounding of feet gets louder, he looks out the window and he sees this bacher, one of the bachem he had met yesterday, is frantically running after the carriage, waving after him. So he tells the wagon driver, stop a second. He looks out the window and says, bacher, what do you want? He says, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. He says, what do you mean don't leave? We're done. We, we, we did our thing, we're done. He says, please don't leave. He says, Bacha, what don't, you, what don't you understand? I asked you the question, you didn't know the answer, I'm going to the next town now. The Bacha says, fine, that's fine. He says, but please, you gotta put me on my misery. I'm, I'm, I couldn't sleep all night. Just tell me the answer. You can't leave town before you tell me the answer. I know the test is over, but don't leave town until you tell me the answer. So the, the wealthy man, Sitting in the carriage, he looks at this bacher and says, you're the first one to do that. Get out, <laughs> climb aboard. You're the son-in-law. That's what he was waiting for. He was waiting for the bacher who would run after and say, but you can't leave me until you tell me the answer. So let's return to our original question. Yankee Vivino's on his deathbed. He makes one request, simple request. This is where you got to bury me. Yasef's not questioning it. He knows that his Rebbe has a darn good reason. He's not questioning it for a second. So what does Yankov Avino mean when Rashi says that, 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 that he says, I know that your heart is troubled because of me. It doesn't mean 
I know that you're questioning my motives or you're, you have hard feelings. No, what does, what does it mean? I know that because you're my student, a real student, that you're troubled, it disturbs you that you don't know the reason for this. And I never told you the reason. And if not now, when? So now I'm going to tell you the reason. And he tells him this beautiful story that will happen in the future, the future from, from that point, about how Mama Rachel is going to cry for her children when they go into exile. The point is, if Yosef hadn't been disturbed, in other words, if he would have said, my, my father, my Rebbe, he's a tzaddik, everything he does is just, everything he does is good, I don't need his explanations. Of course, you don't need his explanations, but you should want his explanations, you should thirst for his explanations, right? So if Yosef would have said, eh, whatever, it's, I'm sure it's all good, he never would have received that beautiful explanation. And we would have never received, or at least not through these channels as we know it. So, this is a true student. And Yankiv knew his, his son was a true student. That he was disturbed. That it was keeping him up at night. He couldn't sleep once he knew that it was... See, until that point, he could have rationalized... Well, I guess it's not important to be buried in Maris Machpelah. How do I know? Because my mother wasn't buried there. But then when Yankov is so insistent upon it, I must be buried there. All of a sudden, now the question arises, oh, then it is extremely important. And once he knows it's that important, he's disturbed that he doesn't have that piece of the puzzle. Not that he's questioning, not that he's doubting. That he's yearning for that clarity of Torah knowledge that will bring him closer to Hashem. And this is the lesson for all of us. When you learn something in Torah, does it disturb you? Or do you just shrug it off and say, eh, it's okay, it's fine. Torah has its opinion, I have my opinion. I'm sure the Torah is right. Torah is holy, Torah is smart, Torah is Hashem's wisdom, it's right. But, you know, I have my own view and that's okay. No, it's not okay. It should trouble us on an emotional level when we cannot align our seichel with... And this is the Jewish inquisitive tradition, to be troubled, to be disturbed by Torah. It's a good thing to be disturbed by Torah, always asking the question, always yearning for that connection.